Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. Thanks for joining us today. We're continuing our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're looking at the last half of Matthew chapter 18 and the first half of Matthew chapter 19. And there are so many important themes that we're going to be talking about today, applying these scriptures, particularly to family life. We're going to be talking about forgiveness and unforgiveness. We're going to be talking about preventing divorce with confession. And we're going to be talking about the prime cause of divorce and even more. But before we start, I'm going to tell you what I'm looking at right now. I'm looking at my New Testament, my very large print New Testament, Matthew 18 and 19. And I'm going to ask you, if you're looking at your scriptures, you're welcome to follow along with me. Imagine that that big, bold 19 wasn't there. Because when Matthew was writing Matthew, there were no chapter divisions or even verse numbers for that fact. So in other words, chapter 19 is just the next paragraph. And I can't say for sure if Matthew was conscious of some of these things, but I try to look at times very seriously at the scriptures through the lens of how would this apply to marriage and family life. And so uh, that's my glasses, I guess, the lenses I'm looking through as we look at these two chapters today. So let's start with Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or some translations say 70 times 7, and I'll explain why there's a difference in translation. I found a nice little website that defines escalation of marital arguments, and basically Peter's coming up to Jesus and saying, um, you know, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who sins against me until I can escalate things. And Jesus is obviously saying, uh, no, we don't want to escalate, but this is what escalation looks like in a marriage. Escalation within a couple's conflict happens when each partner communicates in a way that leads to harsher statements, ratcheting it up, more intense emotions, and the volume going upwards figuratively and literally. The higher a couple reaches the escalator, the more likely they are to say hurtful things they later regret. Well, if that's escalation in marital arguments, Matthew 18, these two verses we just read, are the ultimate radical de-escalations. And what causes people who love each other, people who have pledged their life together in faithfulness in marriage, to do such foolish things as starting to escalate or starting to withhold forgiveness towards a spouse. Well, the key 
to this passage is really in two numbers. The first number is seven, and the second number is 77. Jesus said to him, I don't say seven times, but 77 times. And there's only one place in the Bible where those two numbers appear together, and it's in Genesis chapter 4. So if you flip back to the beginning of the Bible, and actually I'm going to take a step even further back than Genesis 4, in Genesis 3, we have original sin. And we're trying to answer the question, you know, why do we harbor unforgiveness? Why do we escalate conflict rather than finding the resource within ourselves to extend forgiveness? Well, Genesis 3 talks about original sin, and even within that, we find that uh, Adam was blaming Eve for his sin before God Almighty. That was a pretty pathetic argument. But after Genesis 3, how long does it take for original sin to start finding its way through human history? Well, it takes a grand total of turning the page one page. As you turn from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, this is where we're going to find our two numbers, 7 and 77. In Genesis chapter 4, it begins with the first murder of a family member, a family member. And it's this quick that sin starts radically disrupting family life. And then you find that uh, Cain, after he kills his brother, says to God, well, anybody who finds me is going to kill me. And God says, no, if somebody hurts Cain, I will avenge them sevenfold. Now, was God in favor of escalating things? In other words, if somebody kills one person, Cain, then I, God, is going to take out seven lives, sevenfold, uh, take out somebody's entire family if somebody just kills that one man, Cain? No, what God was trying to do is that he realized something really went wrong with humanity. And it's no longer inside to be normal human beings. I'm sorry, we're not normal after Genesis 3. And Genesis 4 is trying to show where it shows up. It's in human relationships. It's in family life and married life. And so God says, no, when I say sevenfold, it was a restraint. Even though people weren't willing to forgive as Jesus recommends, he says, no, there will be a sevenfold revenge if you take out Cain's life. Okay, so we go a little further down the family tree of fallen humanity in Genesis 4, and in, down a couple of great-grandsons, this fella in the middle of chapter 4 named Lamech is born. And Lamech, we find out from Genesis 4, is the world's first polygamist. And we even know the name of his uh, two wives. It's mentioned right there in Genesis 4. And then Lamech, the world's first polygamist. You see what's going on with family life here? Again, I've just turned one page from Genesis 3, and this is what's going on in the human family. Lamech says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech 77-fold. 
unrestrained revenge. And just P.S., the reason why some translations say seven times 70 or some say 77 is, are they translating from the Hebrew or the ancient Old Testament Greek? The ancient Greek has what is called 77. That's why you have the difference in numbers. But Jesus is saying to Peter, coming back to Matthew, basically Jesus is reversing what went on in Genesis 3 and 4 and for the bulk of human history and continues to this day. This is the way nations treat each other and families treat each other and married couples treat each other and shouldn't be Jesus. Now, I'm going to paraphrase. This is a really family-oriented Steve paraphrase of Matthew 18. But Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I didn't just come to give people a psychological boost or some great tips for relationships. I came to radically heal and transform relationships, marriages, and family life. Jesus came to heal what happened in Matthew, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3. The consequences of that do not occur in Genesis 4 in our lives. Then we go right into the parable of the unforgiving servant. Now, this could apply to any relationship, could be a sports team, could be a work. But I'm asking you today, let's follow through with the focus on family life application of these verses. And the parable of the unforgiving servant, you've probably heard it several times, is that one man owed... 10,000 talents uh, to the person who lent him money. And in the old world, uh, if you couldn't pay back, uh, you could be put in prison and or your family sold into slavery to help pay back the loan. And this man owned, and this is according to some commentators, between 58 and 80 pounds of gold. Now, I'm not sure exactly what gold 80 pounds of gold is selling for today. But one commentator suggested it could be right around a billion dollars, okay? So, you know, he's, give me a little bit more time and I'll pay you back a billion dollars. It's kind of like the U.S. debt. When's that going to be paid off? Never. And this man could never pay back the debt he owed, and yet his master forgave him. And this is actually our debt in front of God. When we've sinned against the holy God, it's an unpayable debt. There's no way we ourselves can atone for what we have done. There has to be the mercy coming from God himself. So then the parable goes on. This guy goes out forgiven, and one of his fellow servants owed him 100 denarii. And what's that in today's wages? It's about a day's wage. It was a Roman silver coin, okay? And so a day's wages in comparison to a billion dollars, and you would think this guy, having experienced firsthand the great forgiveness from God, he would turn around and, and express that towards his fellow servant who owed him money, a day's wage, and he goes, no, I'm not going to. And when it finally gets back to the master, what happens, it's not good. Um, 
Jesus said, that man should have had mercy on his follow, fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And the Lord delivered him to the jailers until he could repay his debt. And so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I'm going to tell you how it can become very difficult to experience a divorce in your marriage, okay? It's very difficult to end up in a divorce situation if you refuse to build a piggy bank full of spousal offenses. That means you just kind of store them up, okay? Okay, that's two. That's two today. Three, four. Hey, we're at seven. And then you wait till you get to 77, metaphorically speaking, and that eventually leads to divorce. But if you engage in what I call realistic confessions, and by that I mean not just you go to your parish, you go confess your sins, say your act of penance, and leave, not realizing what has just occurred. You have just been forgiven the billion dollars. And it's a question, do you realize that? Do you have any conception? Well, it was just a little sin. Really? Little sins are a big deal against a holy God. Mortal sins are an incredibly big deal against a holy God. And if we realize and appreciate what God has done for us, it should become very easy to extend that to others. Okay? So, we looked at a marriage view of the parable of the unforgiving servant, and then we go to the next paragraph, which just happens to be Matthew chapter 19, and the divorce question comes to Jesus. Pharisees came up to Jesus, and this was a test. They asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jewish religious teachers had two views of divorce. One was for literally any reason whatsoever. I mean, literally, if a wife burned a husband's dinner, he could divorce her. I mean, it sounds bizarre. Others had, you know, uh, you know, if they did something a little bit more serious, and there's a kind of like a, a inter-Jewish religious teacher debate as far as what's going on. And Jesus, rather than falling into the divorce trap, says, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, he's quoting Genesis 2, he's going back beyond Genesis 3, where the original sin. He's going back to the original intention. This is what Jesus came to do for marriage, putting it back to Genesis 2 rather than Genesis 3 and 4 and the rest of human history. He goes, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this, this is a reality. I've illustrated this in conferences, like taking two pieces of paper, putting a little super glue between them and gluing them together. And I said, okay, let's try to take them apart. And it can't be done without leaving part of one spouse in the other and vice versa. So he said, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, 
let not man put asunder. This is called the indissolubility of marriage. A valid marriage can't just be split. It can't be dissolved. It is indissoluble. Now, just a real quick qualification. Um, there are spouses in situations that are physically abusive and critically dangerous to family welfare. This teaching does not prevent finding safety in separation. Just sometimes it's taken a little too far. But the disciples' reaction was to the no divorce teaching, and Jesus is pretty clear about that. The disciples in verse 10 of Matthew 19 say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, that's no divorce, it is not expedient to marry. But Jesus said to them, not all men can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, if you want to have a lifelong marriage without the Genesis 4 fireworks of all the troubles that immediately popped up after original sin, then there has to be a gift given. And this is the key. The Catholic Church doesn't teach the indissolubility of marriage, period. The Catholic Church teaches the indissolubility of marriage because there is a gift that enables the indissolubility of marriage. This is a long paragraph, fairly long, reading on the air, but it is so incredibly good. This is from Pope Pius XI, an encyclical he wrote on Christian marriage on December 30th, I believe it was 1931. It was the very year that the Anglican Church was hoodwinked by the birth control movement and set in motion the pivot of civilization, according to Margaret Sanger, when the first Christian denomination caved. My co-author in Christian fatherhood, Jim Burnham, gives this encyclical to his friends as a wedding gift. He feels it's the best Catholic writing that's ever been done regarding marriage, and yet I have literally spoken to directors of family life for a diocese who have master's degrees in Catholic marriage and family life who have never read this. So in case you haven't heard it, this is paragraph 40. This is the gift that makes indissolubility possible. By the very fact that the faithful with sincere mind give such consent, they open up for themselves a treasure of sacramental grace from which they draw supernatural power for the fulfilling of their rights and duties, perseveringly even unto death. Hence, this sacrament not only increases sanctifying grace, but also adds particular gifts, dispositions, seeds of grace, by elevating and perfecting the natural powers. By these gifts, the parties are assisted not only in understanding, but in knowing intimately, in adhering to firmly, in willing effectively and successfully putting into 
practice those things which pertain to the marriage state, its aims and duties, giving them the actual assistance of grace whensoever they need it for their duties of their state. I hope you hear this because there's two parts to the indissolubility of marriage. The first is very simple. For valid marriages, there's no divorce, period. Okay, end of debate. But in order to do that, we're not left on our own because the disciples came to Jesus and said, well, probably better not get married then because this is too radical. It is too radical apart from that treasure of sacramental grace for marriages that I just read from Pope Pius. Now, in my estimation, I'll just speak first person, without the grace that he mentions, marriage and family life would resemble more of Genesis 4 than what I just read to you, okay? So uh, this is the picture of Catholic married life. It's just that the Catholics don't like divorce or Catholic Church teaches against divorce. It has a resource for lasting lifelong marriage. So the disciples come back at Jesus and they said, well, what about Moses? Because in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses commanded that uh, a man, when he divorced his wife, gave her a certificate of divorce. And the reason this happened was that men were divorcing their wives, marrying somebody else, and deciding to take that wife back, uh, divorce the second wife, and all this kind of stuff. And all that Moses was trying to do was put a break on this um, treating wives like disposable items, uh, you know, throwaway wives or whatever, and then taking them back or throwing them away again. Jesus said, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce their wives, but from the beginning, Genesis 2, also written by Moses, it was not so. And so the Deuteronomy legislation was like the legislation of protecting Cain sevenfold. It was for hard-hearted people to restrain sin, but it couldn't be stopped. Uh, if you have a hard heart, you're not going to have a lasting happy marriage, period. It's that simple. And that's, the, that's what's wrong with the human race. And the Bible isn't a secret about this. Again, you have original sin and you literally turn the page and family life is a disaster. And so these aren't just little tips um, you know, self-help, do one, two, three steps. And this is a fundamental transformation of marriage. And probably the most important verse to go right along with Matthew 19 and verse 8, where Jesus says, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to get to, to divorce, is Ezekiel chapter 36 which is a prophecy of the new covenant. And the new covenant is Jesus coming into this situation of a disastrous world. In Ezekiel 36 and verse 26, God prophesies a new heart I will give you. This is the new covenant. And a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. The reason we can have indissoluble marriage is because the gift of grace and God's blessing in the New Testament of giving us a new heart that enables us to love as it was initially intended. And is this means that um, marriage becomes easy? Well, maybe for some people, but I don't think necessarily that's true because a lot of times when a marriage seems difficult to the point of being impossible, when you reach the stage in your marriage where you say, I can't take this any longer, okay, that's when Pope Pius comes in and says there's a treasury of grace available in all marital situations. And maybe there's someone who wants to empower you, someone who wants to enable you beyond your own resources to love your spouse. And that's what we have is faith. And you know, as a new Catholic, I I have to admit, I was pretty amazed because I went all around North America reading a paragraph from John Paul II's apostolic exhortation, the role of the Christian family in a modern world. A lot of people wanted to know, uh, you know, what would cause an evangelical minister to want to become a Catholic? Well, it was John Paul II, the role of Christian family in a modern world. And to my amazement, um, Catholics didn't read it. And I would read it and think, wow, that was profound. <laughs> why, why didn't you read it? The Pope wrote this for your family. And the most amazing thing to me, I mean, really amazing, is that I would speak to hundreds of Catholic couples who never put two and two together, never put together the treasury of matrimonial graces with the Eucharist. John Paul II said, the Eucharist is the very source of Christian marriage. In this sacrifice, Christian spouses encounter the source for which their own marriage covenant flows is structured and continuously renewed. How often have you gone to Mass, gone up and received the blessings of the Eucharist and in faith connected it with your marriage? Perhaps it's something we should all do all the time. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 457 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.